you have a Bible with you this morning, let me encourage you to open up to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts this morning, chapter 16, and we're kind of continuing our verse-by-verse study to this amazing book. If you are taking notes this morning, you see that the title for the message this morning is The Conversion of Lydia. The Conversion of Lydia. We're in Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 15. So I'll read what Luke writes here, and then we'll jump into our time together in God's Word this morning. So Luke writes this in Luke chapter 16, verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and our household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Father, we're grateful this morning to be able to sing the songs that we've sung, to be able to open your word, both in the psalm and here in Acts chapter 16. And we pray that today, God, that you would help us to be blessed as we learn a little bit more about Lydia, about her conversion, about Paul's special part of his second missionary journey to this area of Philippi. We pray that you would teach us what you want us to learn so that we can be faithful as salt and light and as representatives, ambassadors for Christ today, that we would desire to just see you work in our hearts this morning in a way that would cause us to love you more and to worship you more faithfully. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, the women liberation movement was a fight for women's rights. Women's lib, as it was dubbed, was a political alignment of women and feminist intellectualism. It emerged in the late 1960s and continued into the 1980s. And the women's lib movement fought for economics. It fought for psychological and social freedom, which was deemed necessary for women to progress from being second-class citizens. Now, there are many things about the movement which I would agree with, and I'm sure you would too. Some things that started even earlier, such as women being awarded the right to vote back in 1920. I would also say I totally agree with equal pay for equal work, the act that passed in 1963. I am for women going to college and playing sports and holding any political office. And part of the reason that the Women Live movement today eventually died down, this is up and roaring in the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s, and you don't really hear that term anymore, the Women's Live movement. Part of the reason that it's died down today is that we don't even know what a woman is. Surely you remember back in March of this year about the confirmation hearing of Judge Katanji Jackson. She was being questioned as she was being uh, heard in front of the Senate and Senator Marsha Blackburn asked the Supreme Court nominee at the time if she could define the word woman. I can't, Jackson replied. You can't, Blackburn said. 
Not in this context. I'm not a biologist, Jackson said. The meaning of the word woman is so unclear and controversial that you can't give me a definition, Blackburn asked. Politico then reported the Tennessee Republicans line of questioning hit on nearly every political hot button issue from critical race theory to teaching children about gender identity in schools to Leah Thomas, a transgender swimmer on the University of Pennsylvania's women's team. Jackson said her role as a judge would be to address the disputes about a definition and to interpret the law. The fact that you can't give me a straight answer about something as fundamental as what a woman is underscores the dangers of the kind of progressive education that we're hearing about, Blackburn said. Well, I'm sure if you kind of track with that fiery exchange during those days in March, you were just alarmed, as I am, that the transgender movement has really upended women's lip. They don't know what to fight for anymore if they don't know who they are. And I'm just here to say to you this morning, how sad, how sad that a culture is so confused that it doesn't properly understand the beauty and the value of a woman. Far too long, the church has been attacked for having a biblical view of womanhood. But I am saying to you this morning that it's God's word, not the culture, that honors and upholds and champions the true beauty of womanhood. Here at Placerita Bible Church, we believe in biblical complementarianism, just simply a position that states that God created man and women equal before God in our value and in our dignity, but we have different roles and responsibilities both at church and at home. To say it another way, we're equal but different. Equal because we're all created in the image of God to serve him with our gifts and our abilities, but God's given us different roles to fulfill both in Christ's church and in what that looks like at home. And while the Bible teaches that pastors and elders should be men and that husbands should be the head of the house, women have an incredible purpose and a contribution and a high value in the word of God. In fact, there are thousands of ways that women contribute to our love for Christ and our love for each other. And let's not forget that it's the hand that rocks the cradle that rules the world. In fact, let's reflect for just a moment on the role women play throughout the Bible. Though this list could be much, much longer, let me just give you 12 events from the Old and New Testament in which women played a key role in redemptive history. You can just listen. Number one, a woman's absence is the first thing that is declared not good in creation. Ever think about that? Genesis 2.18, then the Lord said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Number two, a woman will give birth to the serpent-crushing seed, the Messiah. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Number three, a woman is the first and only character in the entire Old Testament to give a name to God. It was actually Hagar in Genesis chapter 16, verse 13, so he called the name of the Lord, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. That's a name that was given by Hagar to God, a God who truly sees and looks after us. 
Number four, God first revealed to a woman that Jesus would soon be conceived in Luke chapter one. Number five, a woman and her child in utero are the first recorded people to recognize the Messiah's arrival. That would be Elizabeth and John the Baptist in Luke chapter one. Number six, a woman is the first to expect and request a miraculous sign. It would be Mother uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus there in Cana, John chapter two. Number seven, a woman is the first recorded Gentile to recognize Jesus as the Messiah and to first go and tell her community all about him. That would be the woman at the well in Samaria of John chapter four. Number eight, no woman is ever recorded as acting against Jesus. All of Jesus' recorded enemies in the Bible were men. Number nine, women were the last to stay with Jesus at the cross save one of his disciples. You know, John was there, but there were many women there at the foot of the cross. Number 10, women were first tasked with proclaiming the glorious news of the resurrection, Matthew 28. Number 11, a woman is the first to see the resurrected Lord and also the first to touch his resurrected body, also in Matthew 28 and in John 20. And then number 12, of Paul's four greetings, that includes specific names, a woman is listed first in three of those lists, Romans 16, Colossians 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Those are just major events in the Bible that we all can recollect and think through as we think about the role of women in Scripture. And we haven't even mentioned specifically the life and person of Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Rahab, Deborah, Ruth, Abigail, Elizabeth, Mary, Anna, Dorcas, Priscilla, and now we come to Lydia. And what does all this teach us? It teaches us that God speaks often about women. It teaches us that women play an integral part in redemption. And it teaches us that God deeply values women. Now, that's a lot better view than our culture has today on the beauty of womanhood. Now, the unique thing that I'm going to say to you this morning about Lydia today is that she was actually the first convert to the gospel in all of Europe. She plays an important role in others coming to Christ, and Lydia provides her house as the first meeting place for the church of Philippi. So this morning, I want to teach you a few things about Lydia. We're going to give you three headings in our sermon this morning to help you appreciate her and her witness for Christ. So we'll look at this morning, number one, the journey to Philippi, verses 11 through 12. Number two, the sovereign grace of God, verses 13 through 14. And then the baptism and hospitality of Lydia in verse 15. Let me start with number one, if I can. Number one, the journey to Philippi, verses 11 and 12. That first blank, if you are taking notes this morning, simply says, from Troas to Samothrace to Neapolis, verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. Now, if you remember from last week in our study from the book of Acts, we're looking at Paul's second missionary journey. And after the sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas in Antioch, Paul 
went out with Silas in one direction and Barnabas went out with John Mark in another. And as Paul went out, we last week learned how young Timothy joined their team while he was in Lystra. And after moving on from Lystra, the missionaries, this would be Paul and Silas and now Timothy, as they went on through the region there of Phrygia and Galatia, then they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia for that time. So then they went to a different area, to Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So at this point, they went down to Troas, and then we read in Acts 16, verse 9, where we left off last week, that there was a vision, look at it, verse 9 with me, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so when Paul encountered the closed doors at Galatia and Mysia, he did not give up or return to Antioch, nor did he sulk and complain. The worst thing they could have done would have been to sit still and say, okay, God, I'm not moving until you show me what to do. But instead, we talked about last week where he just kind of kept moving. He just kind of kept moving in the light that God had shown. He kept going in the direction that he was supposed to go. And so that's why he was there in Troas where he then sees the vision here of the man from Macedonia saying, come to us, come to Europe, come share with us. We need your help. And at this moment, when Paul saw that vision, it's pretty clear, saw the vision, he knew that when one door was closed and then a second door was closed and then God opened this door for Paul to go to Macedonia to preach the gospel to them. And when God made it clear, Paul did not hesitate. But immediately, he sought to go to Macedonia. He didn't wait. He didn't linger. He didn't ask questions. He just went. And we also see in verse 10 from the plural, I pointed this out last week, that when Paul had seen the vision immediately, it says, we sought to go on to Macedonia. And so at that point, it's a hint that Luke has now joined their missionary team. You had Paul and Silas, you had Timothy from Lystra, and now Luke has joined their team, and their team is now ready to go into Macedonia. We are, we're seeing here that God was building his team to do his work. God had chosen the people he wanted, God had chosen the direction that he wanted them to go, and God had chosen his timing when they were to proceed. And so here in verse 11, 11 with all that background kind of in mind, setting sail then from Troas, they made a straight course to Samothrace. Samothrace is just an island in the Aegean Sea, approximately halfway from Asia Minor and the Greek mainland. And they, started, uh, they stayed there overnight, and then on the next day, they sailed on to Neapolis. The entire trip would have been about 150 miles, and Neapolis is just a seaport there uh, where Philippi is located about 10 miles inland. And the way that Luke describes the city here would suggest that he may be one of its proudest citizens. In fact, look at verse 12. Your next blank just says, to Philippi, a leading city of Macedonia. There in verse 12, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, we remained in this city some days. Philippi was a Roman colony in the district of Macedonia, which is, of course, in Greece. Philippi was essentially a Rome away from Rome. 
the emperor organized colonies by ordering Roman citizens, especially retired military personnel, to live in selected places so that there would be strong pro-Roman cities in these strategic areas. And while living on foreign soil, the citizens were expected to be loyal to Rome, to obey the laws of Rome, and to give honor and homage to the Roman emperor, emperor. And in return, they were given certain political privileges, including the exemption of paying taxes. Philippi was one of these exciting colonies. It had a, a rich past. In fact, Philippi was named after Philip of Macedon, who was the grandfather of Alexander the Great. Philippi became a Roman colony in 186 BC after Mark Antony and Octavian defeated Brutus and Cassius. And so with its enviable history and its important agricultural industry and strategic commercial location, its gold mines and its famous school of medicine, Philippi was no less than a sophisticated metropolis. Luke calls it, again here in verse 12, the leading city of the district of Macedonia. The fact that he's kind of bragging about it a little bit, some of the commentators believe that Luke may have grown up in this city. He may have attended medical schools. I mentioned there was a famous medical school there. Others say that Luke stayed in Philippi after the mission team went on. In fact, look at chapter 17. Just look over at chapter 17, verse 1. It says, now when they passed through, and so it shows that they, it goes from we to they. And so some would say, well, Luke must have stayed in Philippi a little bit longer, and the they that went on would have been Paul and Silas and Timothy. They went on to the next place in the second missionary journey. And while Luke was left behind, he could have been serving there at the church in Philippi. We're going to read about the church being formed from both Lydia after she's converted, as well as the Philippian jailer after he's converted. There was a church there, and it's very likely that Luke may have spent some time there in Philippi. So now the missionaries remained in Philippi for some days here in verse 13. We're moving now to our second major heading and we're looking at number two, the sovereign grace of God. The sovereign grace of God. Your next blank there says Lydia was by the river to pray. She was by the river to pray. So having learned a little bit about this, uh, the background information, verse 13 says, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So Paul and the other missionaries, when they arrived here to Philippi, they didn't immediately go into evangelizing the whole city, even though they knew that God had called them there. No doubt they were maybe resting up a bit, spending a little time in prayer, putting their strategy together. And as was Paul's habit, the first thing they typically did when they entered a new city was to go into the synagogue. And you remember we had that whole discussion about why he wanted to have Timothy with him. It's because he was, had a Jewish mother, had a Greek father. That way we can reach the Jews, we can reach the Greeks. That's an important uh, missionary strategy at this time. And so he goes there, but guess what? There's no synagogue in Philippi. And the fact that there's no synagogue in Philippi tells us that they didn't have enough men in order to have a synagogue. You had to have 10 men 
men of households in particular that could form together to form a quorum in order to qualify for a synagogue. And if a, if a colony didn't have that or a city didn't have that, it was known, common knowledge of that day, is that you would go outside next to a body of water in the open sky in order to pray. And so that's what's happening in this situation. They, these ladies are out by the river. Paul is there on the Sabbath. There's no synagogue in town. And so he would have known, as it was his common knowledge, to go find that body of water and to see if there's a gathering of believers in Yahweh that he would be able to share with somehow his faith and to begin to evangelize them. And so according, again, to the Jewish law, this would have been uh, the only way that they would have been able to properly worship there by the riverside. And it was most likely uh, the road that led outside of Philippi and crossed by the Gangites River. Now, notice at the end of verse 13, it says that the missionaries sat down. You see that where it says they were by the river and we sat down and spoke to the women who were assembled. I just want to say that sitting down was actually a normal posture of teaching in the Gospels. In the greatest sermon ever preached on planet Earth by the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is called the Sermon on the... We just assume that Jesus had some type of pulpit and he was just pounding it and bringing the heat, right? But he was actually sitting down. Let that be a reminder to you next time you judge those seeker-sensitive churches with the pastor sitting on his stool up in front of the church that Jesus was sitting down. That's what it says. Matthew chapter 5 says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, the disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It was the normal posture in that day for oftentimes them to be seated as they taught. We see the same thing in Matthew chapter 13, verse one. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and he sat by the sea and a great crowd gathered around him so that he got into the boat and sat down. The whole crowd stood on the beach and he told them many things in parables saying a sower went out to sow and he goes in to his uh, sermon on the parable of the sower in that passage. And so we also see here in this passage a similar mentality that when Paul got there, I know there's only a few women around, we don't know exactly how many, but as Paul came, he, he sat down with them. It's a way to meet them where they are, to adapt to what that culture was. So he's probably not adapting. That's what, this is what they did. And he sits down and um, notice that the, the, the fact that there were only women there as well did not deter Paul. Remember, it was the man from Macedonia who appeared in the vision and said, hey, come help us. And when he gets there, he's now having, uh, you know, showing up at the women's Bible study. And he might be thinking like, hey, what's going on? Where are the guys in this setting? But that's, that's not something that he mentioned. He just kind of sits down and begins to speak to them. And presumably, just knowing the history of Paul and the passion of Paul and the heart of Paul, presumably he began to open up some of the teaching from the Old Testament and began to share with them how Jesus was the Christ. And to be taught by a traveling rabbi like Paul was no doubt a rare privilege for these women to hear on that day. And I think that it's significant to say, as we've already said, that the first people that Paul preached to in Europe were women. I mean, Paul himself is often criticized today as a male chauvinist by those who reject what was inspired by the Holy Spirit, who superintended Paul to write what he wrote about the role of women in the church. But you must know that Paul was not prejudiced. 
as in contrast to that of his fellow Pharisees. You want to talk about prejudice? It was the Jewish Pharisees. They would not dare teach a woman. And they regularly, in their recited prayers, thanked God that they were neither Gentiles, slaves, or women. Because that's the worst thing you could be, right? A Gentile, a slave, or a... In their mind, that's what they would pray. In fact, it's recorded that one of their prayers said this, quote, it is better that the words of the law be burned than delivered to a woman, close quote. It's a pharisaical prayer. It is a prideful, prejudiced position that they had. But Paul was willing to meet with and to teach these women by the river. This courteous attention that Paul gave to women also ran counter with the treatment of the Greco-Roman society. Paul very much valued the ministry that he was able to have with women. And we read about that as he ministers together with Phoebe and various women that he greeted in Romans chapter 16 and even Euodia and Syntyche in Philippians chapter 4 verses 2 through 3 all have a special place in the heart of Paul as he interacts and ministers together with these women. And so one of these women was obviously Lydia. That leads us to our next blank. Lydia was a businesswoman. She was a businesswoman that we're reading about now in verse 14. So he's there with the women. They're, they've sat down. Presumably, he's opened up the scriptures. They're talking and, um, and evangelizing and sharing what he has been sharing all along on his ministry journey. And then you have Lydia in verse 14 again. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. And so we see that Lydia was probably a successful businesswoman from Thyatira. This was the same Thyatira where the church is addressed in Revelation chapter 2. Thyatira was a city well known for its purple dye. Lydia probably was in charge of a branch office of her guild here in Philippi. And God had brought her all the way to Greece so that she would be converted. Lydia was a seller of purple fabrics. Purple dye was all the rage of its day. Whether it was made from the murex shellfish or from the roots of the matter plant, it was very expensive. And as you know, purple garments were worn by royalty and by the wealthy, and so the selling of purple fabrics was a very profitable business. We also know that Lydia had a house large enough to accommodate the missionary team the newfound church that would soon be planted in Philippi after the conversion of the Philippian jailer also benefited from her wealth. We can also assume in Philippians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul thanks the church for their partnership in giving to the gospel work. It's thought that Lydia certainly was a major contributor to the gospel work going forward. It's a reminder, God doesn't need your money but when you grow in Christ's likeness, you grow in your generosity. God truly does bless a cheerful giver. Well, more important than Lydia being a businesswoman was the fact that Lydia was, your next blank, she was a worshiper of God. Lydia was a worshiper of God. Right there in the middle of verse 14, she's the seller, again, of the purple goods, the fabrics is what we think, and that she was a worshiper of God. God. This is a reminder for us today that we are all worshipers. We are all worshiping something or someone. We were created to worship. 
And Lydia had turned from her worship of pagan gods to worshiping the true and living God. She was worshiping the God of the Bible. And we understand here that the word worship means to express devotion to. It means to have a great reverent attitude towards. To worship means that you value, that you desire to exalt, that you express great joy in bringing your utmost attention to. And this phrase, again, worshiper of God, shows that Lydia was a believer in the God of Israel. And while she had likely not become a full proselyte, meaning she didn't observe all of the Mosaic law in its dietary and ceremonial aspect, but she did worship Yahweh, the creator God, the God who had made a special covenant with his people in the same way that we saw the situation with Cornelius in chapter 10 when we looked at verse 2 where it was said that Cornelius was a devout man who feared God with all of his household and he gave alms generously to all people and he prayed continually to God. And we spent time just kind of appreciating the fact that Cornelius was close, but he wasn't quite there yet. And Lydia's close. She has some general understanding, probably about creator God and some general understanding that God was faithful to his people, but she had not yet fully come into the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And like all new believers, Lydia, on her own, did not seek God. She wasn't seeking God on her own. She was simply responding to God's sovereign grace, calling her out of her paganism into a general faith, and then calling her again out of her general faith into a specific faith. And we understand that nobody truly seeks after God on their own apart from God's intervention. I mean, that's what Paul writes in Romans 3, 11. No one understands, no one seeks for God, right? Left in our depravity, we would never seek after God. In fact, Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. So God does the drawing, God does the pursuing, God first loved us, And Lydia's conversion, as we read through it here, along with Cornelius and the Ethiopian eunuch back in Acts 8, all should remind us it's God's sovereign grace. And sometimes people ask about the fate of those who never heard the gospel but are decent people, kind of like Cornelius again, Acts 10, the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, Lydia. Some people would ask, well, did they really need to hear about Jesus I mean, they're already so close. They seem to be decent people. They have a general respect of God. What about the people who've never heard the gospel? And I would say that Lydia's conversion shows us that God will reveal the fullness of the gospel to those that he causes to honestly come to him. In fact, John 6, 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And God will never turn away one who comes to him in repentance and faith. And so Lydia is a worshiper of God, but we see that it's in this very passage that your next blank says Lydia's heart was opened. 
This still needed to happen for her to be converted. Her heart needed to be opened. And so here in, in verse 14, she's a worshiper of God. The Lord, as Paul's there, sitting with her by the river and the other women, presumably, again, opening the scripture, articulating the truths of the gospel, how repentance and faith is necessary in the Lord Jesus Christ. And while he's there in that setting, it was God who, in the middle of verse 14, says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. It was almost like if she did hear other truths up to this point, she didn't really hear it deep in her heart. She might have had a general awareness and a general appreciation and an affinity too, but that's different than understanding the clarity of the truths of the gospel, the fact that God is holy and that you and I are sinners, and that Christ and Christ alone came, and he died on a cross, and he was raised from the dead, that we could have newness of life, and in order for that to happen in us, we must repent and believe in that gospel message, the good news that we don't have to die and face God's judgment, that we can receive his mercy by grace through faith in Christ alone. This is what happened to her. This is what happens to each one of us when God opened your heart. And it's so important that we understand how it's communicated because so many times in our own testimony, we'll say things like, well, I decided that I wanted to follow Jesus when I felt like it. You know, we, don't, we might not say it quite that sassy, but you know, sometimes people just start to share their testimony and it's me, 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 as if somehow they finally opened their own eyes. And that's not how the scripture ever speaks of it. It's saying, no, no, God in his sovereign grace showed me my sin. And that's a good thing. And God in his sovereign grace showed me my great need for a savior. And that's a wonderful thing. And God in his great grace gave me the ability to do what I could not on my own, which was to believe in him with all my heart. We're we're really talking here again about God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. He must open your heart so that you can be a believer in him. It was the Lord who opened Lydia's heart. He crushed her pride. He convicted her of her sin. He showed her the way. He regenerated her heart. He renewed her mind. He revived her soul. Ephesians 2 says it like this, you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. That's you and I. We're we're not thinking about it. We're not kind of walking hand in hand with Jesus. We were dead in our trespasses and our sins. We had, in a sense, drowned, and we were at the bottom of the lake. No breath, no heartbeat, no life whatsoever. Dead is dead. And in Ephesians 2, verses 2 and 3, talks about we were actually following the prince of the power of the air. So we weren't like dead, neutral dead. We're like dead, pursuing Satan dead. We're like spiritual zombies walking around worshiping Satan, in a sense, following the prince of the power of the air. And then we get to verse 4 of Ephesians 2, which says, as you know, but God. Something had to happen. Something had to change. It wasn't that you got smarter. It was that God began to work. God did what he does. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Remembering God's sovereignty and salvation is the foundation of biblical 
evangelism. If you don't understand that God's sovereign in salvation, you're going to put all that pressure on your own shoulders. And you're going to think, if I don't go, if I don't say, if I don't call, if I don't do, then they'll never be saved. And then what I'm saying to you is, God will save whom he will save. He will have compassion on whom he will have compassion and have mercy on whom he will have mercy with your help or without your help. And at the same time, God ordains the means in the same way that he ordains the end. And he chooses you to go. And he calls you to go. And he puts words of truth and gospel teaching in your mouth and in your heart so that you want to go. That's why Paul's on this missionary journey. I mean, Paul, more than anyone else, understands the sovereign grace of God in Romans chapter 9, a whole chapter where he just waxes eloquently on the fact that it's God's choice that the older one would serve the younger. It's Jacob that he loved and Esau that he hated. And so we got to remember here that, that remembering God's sovereignty in salvation, I believe, is the foundation of biblical evangelism. Because salvation does not depend on clever evangelistic strategies. Salvation does not depend on winsome personalities. Salvation does not depend on the skill of the preacher, the method of the approach, or the ingenuity of the presentation. Salvation is not a human work, it is a divine work. It is God at work in someone's heart. That's why we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, where we read, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. I mean, sometimes we like to read that to be like, well, he who planted and he and waters are something in the way to God. That's how I would say it, right? But it says that he who plants, he and waters, they're nothing. They're, they are not anything but only God who gives the growth. Only God can save you. Only God can open your ears. Only God can open your heart. In fact, I love the way that Paul describes his evangelistic approach in Corinthians. Why don't you turn to this one with me, if you will. 1 Corinthians chapter, um, chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're talking about the sovereignty of God and salvation. Paul's understanding of that. The way that we can rest in that as evangelists, as missionaries, as Christ followers. While we want to be very active in our uh, reaching out, we want to be very confident that it's God who brings the growth. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, just starting in verse 1, Paul writes to the church there in Corinth, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So what he's emphasizing is, I didn't come with this lofty speech or this incredible wisdom, and he's thinking of it more of a man-made wisdom to where you guys would be like, wow, listen to Paul, verse 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul said, hey, when I came, I came for one reason, to preach Christ and Christ crucified. I didn't come, again, with lofty speech or some type of human wisdom, and then verse 3 and I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. So he wasn't depending upon himself to bring about salvation to the Corinthian church. He's trusting in God with this holy fear and this reverence, trembling before God. Verse 4, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. Again, from a human perspective, it wasn't that he 
articulated this argument, told a funny story, gave a great analogy of something, even though he did have a powerful testimony uh, on his way to Damascus, right? And he did share that testimony, but he's saying that it wasn't the plausible words of wisdom, but what was it? In the middle of verse four, but in demonstration of the spirit and power. He's saying that's what did the work. It was the spirit of God. It was the Holy Spirit working through the preaching of Christ and him crucified that brought power and brought change so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul's saying, if I had something to do with it, if it were based on my preaching from a human standpoint, my wisdom from a human standpoint, my testimony from a human standpoint, though those things all are important, they're not the main bacon, if you will, I don't want to say bacon, I sound like that's trite to the converting work of the Holy Spirit, but you understand what I'm saying. It's not the main uh, power that brought about the change, it was the wisdom of God. It was, it was the power of God. It was the preaching of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so back to, back to uh, Acts here, Paul is just reminding us as Luke is recording the, the description here of it was the Lord that opened Lydia's heart, even though Paul was trained under a well-known scholar in Gamaliel. And Paul was gifted in handling the scriptures. And he was recognized uh, as, as someone who is effectively used by God. He also understood that it wasn't his persuasiveness in and of itself. His persuasiveness saves no one. None of the apostles or preachers of the gospel in the New Testament tried to manipulate matters into their own hands. They didn't try to get a celebrity to share their testimony. They didn't promise prizes to the person who brought the most people. They didn't have a petting zoo. Okay? They didn't have a horse and pony show. They simply faithfully and passionately preached the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. That was their strategy. Mission trip number one, missionary journey number two, he's doing the same thing, preaching the gospel. And many in our day foolishly act as though God were somehow depending on them to convert lost sinners. Nothing could be further from the truth. Appreciate what A.W. Tozer has to say about this in his well-known book called Knowledge of the Holy. If you haven't read that book, it's about the attributes of God and the wisdom of God, similar to A.W. Pink's The Attributes of God, the second book that you would want to read in that vein that's a classic would be Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. Here's what he says about this. Is it God working or is God using us? Here's a quote from the book. He says, probably the hardest thought of all for our natural egotism to entertain is that God does not need your help. We commonly represent him as a busy, eager, somewhat frustrated father hurrying about seeking to help carry out his benevolent plan to bring peace and salvation to the world. But the God who worketh all things surely needs no help and no helpers. Tozer then continues, too many missionary appeals are based upon this fancied frustration of Almighty God. An effective speaker can easily excite pity in his hearers, not only for the heathen, but for the God who has tried so hard and so long to save them and has failed for want of support. 
I fear that thousands of young persons enter Christian service from no higher motive than to help deliver God from the embarrassing situation his love has gotten him into. And his limited abilities seem unable to get him out of. You hear what Tozer's saying? Sometimes we think, well, God needs my help. Like evil's winning the day. God somehow is maybe handcuffed or limited in what he can do. And so he needs my help. And if you're thinking that in the sense of, I just want to be a part of evangelizing, that's fine. There, there should be some motivation in our heart to be like, man, sign me up for the Lord's army. I know it's going to be hard. I know it's going to be tough. Just talk to a missionary right here who's been serving with AWE for a number of years in the Ukraine. Here he is. He was here at the conference I mentioned over the weekend, and this brother has given his life to preach and share and disciple people in Ukraine. He's going to be heading back just in a couple of weeks to Hungary. We appreciate your service, brother, and what you're doing. And I'm just, I'm just saying, like, we want to be active, but we have to theologically understand it's got to be God. It's got to be God who does it. He doesn't need me for saving faith. I just have the privilege of being part of him ordaining the means and the end to be that missionary that Romans uh, 10, 14, and 15 talk about. How can they hear if they don't have a preacher being sent to them? Of course we want to go. And of course we want to preach. And God ordains that. But the saving faith itself, God doesn't need your help in saving a soul. God is fully capable in and of himself to save his elect in the way, in his way, through the gospel, and in his timing. And so we aren't preaching the gospel to help out God. We are preaching the gospel to be faithful, to carry out the Great Commission. That's our goal. We want to be faithful to carry out the Great Commission. And we know that God ordains, again, the end as well as the means. And it is an honor and a privilege to preach the gospel. But God doesn't need us in order to accomplish his purposes. And yet... In this case, we see that God chose to use Paul and his faithful sharing of the scriptures to Lydia and would have her heart opened as she paid attention to what was said by Paul. It was almost like up to this point, she wasn't able to really pay attention to everything that might have been, she might have had exposure to until this moment. And then in this moment, with God's sovereign timing, his plan, his work of opening her heart, this is where Lydia is converted. And it's, it's important for us, again, to acknowledge today that it is the sovereign grace of God that saves you from your sin. Your parenting won't save your child, but God's sovereign grace will. Arguing with unbelievers at work won't save the lost, but God's grace will outsmarting your neighbor won't bring them to salvation, but God's grace will. Debating your fellow students won't soften their hearts, but God's grace will. Requiring your rebellious teenager to go to church won't save their soul, but God's grace will. And at the same time, I would also say that we need to be faithful in our parenting and we need to be having serious conversations with unbelievers about worldview and about the gospel. And I would say to you, if you have a rebellious teenager, I think you ought to bring them to church as long as they're under your roof. I'm just saying that these things in and of themselves are not what saves anybody. It's the sovereign grace of God that must work in a heart to bring them to saving faith. And my friends, that is a relief because otherwise you are going to think it all depends on you. 
Your job is to be faithful. Your job is to be an ambassador. Your job is to share, preach, and call people to repentance and faith, but God has to do the work. That's what we see here in this passage is it's the sovereign grace of God to save Lydia from her sin. And what a glorious thing it was as she gets saved here. We're now moving on to our third heading this morning, number three, the baptism and hospitality of Lydia First, the importance of baptism, verse 15, and after she was baptized and her household as well, we'll just pause it right there, after she was baptized and her household as well, Lydia had been paying attention to what Paul was saying. And it didn't go in one ear and out the other, it stuck in her head and it settled in her heart. That was God's sovereign grace. And she contemplated the truth and she considered these things that Paul was sharing with her. And God opened her heart and gave her new life. And one of the first things that happens to a newborn Christian is that they want to totally do away with their old life and they want to start their new life in Christ. And that's the way it ought to be. In fact, if they are slow to want to part with their old life, then that is a red flag. Somebody says, I've come to Jesus, I've gotten born again, but I'm still living my life in ongoing unrepentant sin. That is a major red flag if they understand at all what repentance and faith really means. When, when God really saves someone, he doesn't only open their heart, but he also opens their eyes so they can see the path that God leads to, which is filled with obedience and joy, which is more desirable than the path of the devil, which leads to enslavement and shame. When God saves someone, he opens their mind so they can understand that God's thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. When God saves someone, he opens their tongues so they can taste and see that the Lord is good and that they can use their tongues to glorify God. When, when God saves someone, he doesn't just open their hearts, he opens their ears so that they can hear his teaching and his truth and his testimony so that they will desire to hear more about the attributes of God and the glories of Christ and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The new believer is hungry for more. They're not saying, okay, well, I've had enough. You know, one, one step today, I'm gonna go back. They said, give me more. I, I need more of what you're saying because this is life to my soul. And that's what's happening to Lydia. She's listening, she's internalizing. One of the first steps for a new believer would be to be baptized by immersion as an act of obedience to the Lord's command. That's what happens to new Christians. They let go of the past. They are now walking after Christ. They want to obey Christ. And one of the Christ's commands is that we would be baptized. That we would be baptized is, is showing evidence. It doesn't save you. It's showing evidence of a life that's been changed. And before Christ saved you, there was no reason to be baptized because you were still living in the flesh. But when you begin to walk in the spirit, as your desire grows to walk in the ways of God, you want to be sensitive to and obey every command that he gives. That's part of the fruit of a Christian. You, you understand like, whoa, hold on a second. I'm a Christian, but I've never been baptized, which means I'm not obeying Christ's command. Jesus taught in the Great Commission that we were to go and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Paul taught on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two, verse 38, that we were to repent. That's what he says to the crowd there, repent and be what? baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ there's no exception here if you're a born-again Christian 
then you want to walk with Christ. You want to abandon the old stuff, pursue the new stuff. And one of the first steps would be to be baptized as a new believer. And that's what happens here in the life of Lydia. Paul is no doubt teaching gospel, teaching baptism. And Lydia is converted. And Paul, now as he's still interacting with her, sees that she has this great desire to at this moment, probably in the same setting by the river, to be baptized. The word baptize comes from the Greek word baptizo, and it literally means to be dipped. It means to be immersed. It has the, the idea of being totally put under the water and then brought out of the water as a full picture of dying with Christ in his death and being raised with him to newness of life. The idea of sprinkling is foreign to the scripture. There's no word that indicates sprinkling. There's no testimony in the New Testament that indicates somehow these new believers were sprinkled when Jesus was baptized. In fact, it says in Mark chapter one, verse nine and 10, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. So he's in the Jordan. And then it says, and when he came up out of the water, Immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descend on him like a dove. So we read the prepositions that are in the scripture are important. Jesus was in the Jordan and then he came up out of the Jordan. How about John 3, 23? John the Baptist was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. Some make the argument the Jordan River was just a trickle didn't have enough water, so they had to sprinkle, trickle, sprinkle, trickle, sprinkle. No, don't buy it. No trickle, no sprinkle, right? He's at, he's at a certain spot at the Jordan River. Why? Because the water was plentiful. Because there was enough water where people could be properly baptized. Even the Ethiopian eunuch, as he was heading back to Africa in Acts chapter 8, and he commanded that the chariot be stopped, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and when he had baptized him, they came up out of the water. They went down into and came up out of. You say, Adam, is the mode of baptism really that important? I believe that it is. I believe it's important for us to take the scriptures literally. I believe it's important for us to have a hermeneutic or a way of interpreting scripture that would be faithful to what we read, both in the language and in the practice of what's happening in the early church. Adam, does this mean we can't be friends with our Presbyterians? I didn't say that. You know, I love Presbyterian Christians. We've all benefited enormously from R.C. Sproul, love Ligon Duncan, Kevin, uh, Kevin DeYoung. There's so many out there that you're like, oh my word, that brother encourages my heart like no other. You know what I'm saying? But th so th and, and, and so while I'm being pretty feisty, Come on, I'm a Baptist. What do you want me to do? I'm being feisty about what I believe the scripture teaches. They're still our brothers and sisters in Christ. I just don't want you to listen to them on this subject, all right? On this subject, you just listen to God's word and you take it for itself. What do you believe the Bible teaches about this? And so I'm saying baptism is important because it's commanded by Christ. Baptism is important because it was taught by the apostles. Baptism is important because it was regularly practiced by the early church. And baptism, again, doesn't save you, but it is a picture of what Christ did on the cross. Notice, again, in his death and in resurrection. So notice in verse 15, it then says that Lydia was baptized. And this one other comment here, because it says, and her household as well. And her household as well. Some would interpret this to mean, ah, 
There it is, Adam. That's your infant baptism tax because people lived in community and oftentimes had more than one family in the house. A household could include kids and grandkids and maybe servants and potentially their kids so that you would likely have infants in the home uh, regularly throughout the life of that household. And so there's an argument by those who believe in pedo-baptism or sprinkling that would say, well, if Lydia got in her household, surely that's got to mean that all the toddlers and babies in the house were baptized. And since they couldn't have been dunked, immersed, then they must have been sprinkled. So I'm just making sure you understand that is an argument from inference. It is not an argument that comes from the language or from our understanding of the consistent practice of the New Testament. Two other examples of household baptisms would be that of Cornelius. Same thing in Acts chapter 10, his household was baptized. And a little bit later in this chapter, we're going to read about the Philippian jailer who he comes to Christ and his whole household is baptized. Again, I'm just simply saying those arguments are given out of inference and other different hermeneutical ways of interpreting connections between circumcision of the Old Testament, baptism of the New Testament, but it doesn't really hold up to what the Bible simply in plain language teaches on this subject about believers' baptism. This is what Lydia did. Notice again, she got saved first, then she was baptized in the river. And the point I'm just simply trying to make, just pulling back out of the mood and the timing of baptism is that Lydia was truly born again. And because she was truly born again, she wanted and had a thorough desire to obey everything Christ said. So that's why she got baptized. And then she began to, your last blank, practice hospitality. She gets baptized. It's not just like a, 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 a small thing of the Christian life. It was an important thing. She got baptized. And then she urged us saying, if you believe, uh, that if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay and she prevailed upon us. Again, when someone's radically been saved, they want to know and do everything in God's word, like being baptized, but they also want to spend time with other believers. And part of spending time with other believers happens outside of the church in our homes. And for us to spend time out of the church in our homes requires somebody to practice hospitality. And so Lydia, in this moment, as a brand new believer, urged Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke to come to her house and to stay. She said, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord. In other words, if you believe me to be a true Christian, if you think that I am obeying God with a pure heart, if you find me walking in the way of a new Christian, then come and stay. The text says she desired this so much that she prevailed upon us. It means that she urged us strongly. It means that she insisted and some women just have a way of do that, doing that in a good way, right? Like, hey, you come into our house, come on. Well, I don't know if we can come. Oh, you're coming, come, come on. You're, you're coming to our house, this is what we're doing. You're gonna come over and hang out. And I think that Lydia had that kind of love, that kind of appreciation. And let me just say that there are some suspicious liberal people in the world who say about Lydia that it would have been inappropriate for her to have these men in her house. And I just wanna say that Lydia is a new Christian pursuing with purity the practice of hospitality, and she has invited over four mature believers in Paul and in Silas and in Timothy and in Luke. I don't believe that there's some kind of funny business going on here at all. In fact, it would have been much safer for them to stay with her than in any other ancient inn because those places did reek oftentimes of inappropriate activity. I just think this is a pure, simple way for her to say, you guys have been a blessing to me. 
I want you to come over to my house if there's any way I can serve you. And besides, hospitality is required of all Christians. That's what Romans 12, 13 says. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Hebrews 13, 2, do not neglect to show hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 9, show hospitality to one another. So to make a home where travelers could be exposed to Christian love, family life, and fellowship ought to be a high priority for all Christians and particularly women. Can we just be honest? This is a place where women shine. In general, women cook better than men. I said in general. Don't be offended, men. All right? It's the time we're praising women sermon this today. All right? They know how to cook better oftentimes, clean better, be more attentive to their guests. Guys are standing over by the TV watching the football game. And the women are getting it done. You know what I'm saying? Come on, high five to the ladies. Bam, right there. You know, so that's what Lydia has. She has this heart mindset of having these people in her house because you know why? She's been converted. She's been radically transformed. She's got a new mission in life. Forget the shellfish for a little while. Let the purple dye go out into the sea. I'm here to serve you men. I'm here to serve you Christians. I'm here to take care of loving you in the way that God would want me to. Well, let me ask you this morning, have you been converted? Have you been transformed? Have you been radically changed? Has God opened your heart to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? If so, have you been baptized by immersion as a believer? We have a baptism class going on at our church just here in a couple of weeks. And if you're here today and you've never, ever been baptized by immersion as a believer, the way we do it at our church would be have you first come to our membership class. Through the membership class, we assess your understanding of the gospel and share with you what our church is about. And then we have a baptism class that follows that. And if you're here this morning and God is convicting you at this very moment, you could come today. We have a class that starts at 11.30 over here in the modular and you can learn more about the importance of being part of a local church and then that class continues into a baptism class if you've never been baptized. Well, before you can be baptized, you've gotta be converted though. And that's what we're asking. Have you been transformed radically to the point to where you would say, hey, I'll get baptized. Hey, I wanna follow Christ. Hey, I wanna be more hospitable. I wanna be together with other believers as often as I can, not just for one hour on a Sunday morning. I want that to be a regular part of my life. I pray that after we sing our last song, if God speak into your heart through his word, that you would come. We'll have a few people standing right here by this door. We'd love to pray with you, give you counsel, give you encouragement, and we want you to know we're available to come alongside you in any way that we can. Why don't we pray together now? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the example of Lydia. We're all encouraged just to hear about her testimony, to read from scripture, the beautiful work of saving faith that you brought about in her heart and her life. We stand amazed at the goodness of our sovereign God and at the, 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 the calling that you give us to be faithful ambassadors and missionaries and pastors and to be witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that today, God, that you would work in each heart and in each life. And I pray that there's somebody here who's never been born again, that you would grant them saving faith even on this very day. And God, if there be someone here who's saved, but they've never been baptized in obedience to the Lord's command, that you would bring that conviction and that you would bring that blessing of obedience to front and center in their, in their thinking and in their conscience. I pray, God, that as a church, you would help us all to be more hospitable, that we would long to show hospitality to one another, to love on one another, and to continue to 
uh, stir each other up towards love and good deeds. So be glorified in our hearts as we continue to think about and discuss this message with those that we have lunch with, with our families, and bless us as we sing this last song that we could end our service with a, a worshipful expression of our gratitude to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.